Micah Herndon ran in the Boston Marathon in 2019. And you would think that the way most people would know about Micah would be his running. Micah Herndon became famous not for his running. Micah became famous for his crawling. You see, the last few yards of that race, that former Marine crawled over the finish line. And it was important for him that he finished because three names, Ballard, Juarez, and Hamer, were resonating in his mind. You see, the reason Micah was running the race in the first place was because he had been in the Marine Corps, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marine, stationed in um, Hawaii. He had been a lead gunner, and he had served in Iraq and then later in Afghanistan. When Micah came back, he came back with post-traumatic stress syndrome, and he found that running helped him to deal with his PTSD. That wasn't the only reason he ran, though. When he came back, his three friends did not. And so on his running shoes were their names tied. And when he told the story, he said that as he came to the finish line, that his legs tightened up on him. He got cramps and he didn't know if he could finish. But he kept saying over, over, and over again in his mind, Ballard, Hamer, Juarez. Ballard, Hamer, Juarez. And so he started crawling to the finish line on all fours. But then his right hamstring tightened up even more. And in the Marine Corps, he was taught what was called a slow crawl, a low crawl. And so he began on his belly crawling some more until that hamstring loosened up. And then as he came toward the end, finally that loosened up enough so that he got back on his hands and knees and got over the finish line. I kept repeating those names, he said. The thoughts of their memories and their families flowing through the mind, just like like they always do. Micah endured and he finished. Now, at the end of the race, he was saddened to discover he had not qualified for the New York Marathon. But he said, I'm going to keep running, I'm going to keep training, and then I'll be able to come back to Boston next year. The New York City Marathon found out about why Micah ran, and they told him, you've qualified. And so Micah ran again, and he endured, and he finished well, even though he was exhausted. Micah becomes, in a lot of ways for the rest of us, a kind of a a metaphor, because It's one thing in life to endure difficulty. But what's really difficult in life is when you have the same trial over and over and over again. Some of you in this room understand that. Some of you do with physical problems that just aren't going away. And you have to endure. You have to keep running over and over again. And for some of you, you're going through difficulties, maybe at work, maybe with your family, where you have to experience the same thing over and over again. Maybe it's someone in your family or on your job that's just foolish. They keep doing dumb things, and you have to keep dealing with dumb people over and over again. Enduring's tough, and it's especially tough when the same situation keeps coming up. If you remember, we are in a book that talks about what it is to live life, what it is to live life without the king. And in this case, David was a man who was now suffering because Saul, even though David was the chosen king, Saul's chasing him to kill him. In chapter 24, do you remember how they went round and round the mountain? Right? And then he kept chasing him. And the Lord got Saul away from him and Saul delivered him. David cut off the edge of his robe when he went in the cave to relieve, when Saul went to relieve himself in the cave. And he came out and he said, my father, why are you pursuing me? What have I done to you? Are you chasing a a dead dog, a flea? 
Who's incited you against me? If it's the Lord, give him a sacrifice. But why are you chasing me, my father? And Saul realized, you could have killed me, David, and you didn't. You're an innocent man. I was wrong. And he leaves. And so now he's dealt with a foolish man. And then in chapter 25, David meets Abigail. And sure enough, her wife is, or her husband is named Nabal, which means the fool. And David has to deal with another fool. And Nabal insults him. And David's not wrong. Nabal's wrong. But David says to the 400 men with him, everybody get your sword. We're going to kill this man. And David decides, he says, he's going to kill every single male in that family. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking somebody insults you and you're going to slaughter every single male. It seems like a little bit of an overreaction, David. So David's acting like the fool as well. So he chases him and this wonderful woman named Abigail falls on her face, realizes what her husband done, sends a gift to him and says, blame me. I should have been more on top of things. The ball, my husband's a fool. He's acting like it. You're not wrong. He's wrong. But David, you're going to be king someday. I know the Lord is going to be faithful to you. You don't want bloodshed on your head. You don't want that kind of guilt on your head, David. And you sure don't want to take revenge. That's God's. When you become King David, I don't want this to be on your mind. And David is so grateful because she's got his mind thinking spiritually again. And he said, blessed be the Lord God who's brought you to me. And David now understands that he was wrong because this wonderful woman helped him to get a spiritual perspective in life. And he did get a spiritual perspective. And as the chapter ends, it's one of the weirdest endings in all the Bible. It says at the end of the chapter, Nabal suffers a stroke and he dies. And so in the Hebrew, David and Abigail says, yippee, yippee, yahoo. And they said, that's not really true. But they get excited because now David's wife has been given to another. He's free to remarry. And now uh, Abigail's husband has died. She's free to remarry. So they go, hey, we're both single. And he marries her. And then the verse says, and David also married a Hinoam, the Jezreelitess. And you have to throw up your hands and say, why in the world would you want another woman? And then back to chapter 1 in 1 Samuel. And the foolishness of breaking God's pattern for marriage. David is back acting foolish again. So, this by the way, there's Micah crawling to the finish line for you in exhaustion. We'll come back to that. So last week, we listened to what a fool believes. Only a fool will not listen to the wise. But sometimes we have to deal with situations that never seem to end over and over and over again. And we deal with foolish people who never seem to learn the guy on the bottom, if you notice, his battery starts to wear out. We repeatedly, repeatedly dealing with foolishness is exhausting, isn't it? And exhaustion for the believer is dangerous. Some of you in this fellowship, I know for a fact, are just tired. Have you all felt this at all lately? Have you all felt what it is to live in America today and to hear the same news over and over again? And I don't know about you, but guys, seriously, I'm just getting tired of it all. And then you're dealing with other believers at times. You're thinking Christians. Christians are sinful too. And you deal with it over and over again. And I, I've had many people comment on this, but I believe without question that the forces of darkness in our country, men and women, are, have assembled, and they're attacking us. They're after the fellowship. They're after you, and they're doing everything they can to wear you down. Let's talk about that a little bit today. Let's talk about exhaustion and 
how we might deal with it. David had to deal with Saul. He had to deal with the Ziphites. Remember those guys, chapter 24, they go, hey, David's hiding in a cave. The creeps, Hebrew word. He had to deal with them. Today we're going to see they do it again. You'd think they'd stick to making lighters. Then the ball was a fool, had to deal with them. Had to be exhausting. Had to be exhausting. So here we go. 26, the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? <laughs> Gum. They sell him out again. So Saul went down to the Z- desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops. Wow, 3,000? David had 600 men by now. Started with four. He's up to six. They're vastly outnumbered. And these are crack soldiers. He went to search for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakalah, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. A few comments for your notes, if you like. The Ziphites sell him out again. And I just want to make this comment. The reality of life means we have to deal with some problems over and over. The reality of life means we have to deal with some problems over and over. Somebody at work, somebody in your family, medical problem, whatever it is. Infertility, you have to deal with it over and over again. Let's go on. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where, he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. So David goes up, he sees him there. Saul was laying inside the camp, and that's what they would do. The army would encamp around him naturally to protect the king. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who'll go down into the camp with me to Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go with you. Wow, brave man. A couple comments. Before David acted, he gathered information. Did you notice that? And I just want to make this comment about that. No matter how much emotion is invested in a situation, it's rarely wise to act before we get the facts. And I know that seems like a very, very simple thing, but I have reacted so many times to situations and later found out, well, did you know this? Uh, No. And boy, is my face red. So it's good to get the facts before you act. So let's go on then. And David and Abishai went into the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp. See what's going on here? There's a whole army of 3,000 men around Saul, and David and Abishai are, you know, going into the camp. And he was laying there, Saul was, with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner, who is the greatest warrior, commander of the army, is laying next to him. All these guys are laying around him. And somehow, David sneaks in there. Really bold, just like coming out of the game. But there's times where David just casts himself on the mercy of God. And it says, Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I'm not going to have to strike him twice. David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Last week we talked, or two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of respecting authority. Men and women, I want to make a few points here. David had spared Saul's life before and was, again, unjustly being pursued. A lot of things would have justified David to kill this man. Yet David steadfastly believed God's promise to make him king instead of his own manipulations. 
can't do the right thing the wrong way. You can't do the right thing the wrong way. Once again, someone presents an action as God's will that is not. Do you remember what happened in the cave? They, when he got in the cave, they said, David, this is the day that the Lord has said, I'll deliver your enemy into your hand. And if you're David, you're going chapter and verse. I don't remember that one. So sometimes, it's, men and women, it's a real danger to use circumstances to determine God's will. It can be dangerous to use circumstances to determine God's will. we got to be careful when we suppose to speak for God. Proverbs 30, verse 6, we gave you two weeks ago. It says this, Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be found a liar. When we speak for God, we've got to be very careful. Just because we believe it doesn't mean it's true. Just because we believe it does not mean it's true. Let's go on. Just because we believe something is true doesn't mean we don't want to use circumstances. So, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. See what David is saying? David's not being a prophet here, although one of those ends up being true. David is saying God's going to take care of him, isn't he? See that? The Lord will strike him or his time will come, have a heart attack like Nabal, or he, and he will die, or he'll go into battle and perish, which is exactly what happened. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the in the water jug that are near his head. He does what I do. I've got a glass of water in the bathroom at night, so spiritual people do that. And so, <laughs> that's a joke. And let's go. So they, they go up to Saul. They're standing there, and they grab the spear. They grab the jug of water. So David took the spear in the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake them. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So God was working for him on his side. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. And there's 3,000 men are down there, right, in the valley. 3,000 men. And he called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? <laughs> what? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? And David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who's like you in Israel? You're the chief warrior. Why didn't you guard the Lord, your king? Someone came to destroy your Lord, the king. What, have you, what you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? And Saul then comes into it and he says, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my Lord, the king. And he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant's word. And if the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, nudge, nudge, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share of the Lord's inheritance, Israel, and have said, go serve other gods. That's terrible, idolatry. Now do not let my blood fall, far, fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. Don't drive me out. The king of Israel had come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul, realizing once again David could have killed him, says, I've sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again, 
Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. David says, here's the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. David realizes this guy's not mentally stable. I am not going to come back because I don't know what tomorrow morning is going to be like. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. few things in this for you in your notes, 13 to 23. This chapter again emphasizes the truths that we saw in chapter 24 and what we saw in 25. David once again wisely and at a safe distance directs Saul's thinking to a spiritual point of view. What we said to you in 24 and 25 was Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. And when some of us are dealing with people that are angry, we get more in their face. Guess what happens? They get angrier. The Bible says that David directed his thinking to the Lord. A soft answer turns away wrath, and Saul became reasonable and proved that out. Once again, it's clear. Wisdom is involved not only in what we say, but how we say it. And I want to say a word to some of the personality types from our fellowship. I appreciate very much that some of you are different than me, and I thank the Lord that you are, because some of you have an ability to be more blunt than I. And I only caution you with this. I have a lot of weaknesses. We don't have time this morning to go through all of them. We have to be out by Monday morning. But you do too, and I would only caution you this. I've heard people say to me a thousand times when they say something, well, it's the truth. It is. But the way we say things to people is as important as what we say to them. And sometimes we shut people off from being responsive and listening to us because we're not wise in the way we do things. So let's go on and finish out this chapter. The Lord delivered you into my hands, David says, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. That's how I see you, Saul. As surely as I value your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And Saul said to David, may you be blessed. Wow, there's a change. May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. David went on his way, and Saul returned home. So a few principles before we move on. David knew who he was dealing with, and he acted accordingly. And again, I want to make this point. When people act foolishly, we should address them in kind. David was becoming an expert with fools. If you remember, the 400 who came to him were a mess, and God was training him to be king with those people. And if you're wondering, why, is, why do I have a boss like this? Why do I have a friend like this? Why did I get married to Dan? Or something like that. You're thinking of all the people you have to deal with in your life. God uses that as a training ground in your life, a training ground. And he was becoming an expert in dealing with people. Want to look at your notes now. There's some characteristics of fools in your notes. Want to quickly go through them with you just to do a brief overview of some of the passages in Proverbs. First one, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And what we're saying here is very simply that fools are often not teachable at all. So what do they look like? Proverbs 12.16. Fools show their annoyance at once. You get irritated easily? Don't. The prudent overlooks an insult. I tell you what, living with someone that's like this, I want to just say this to you. Overlooking something, let it go. You know that, that biblical movie, Frozen. You know, there's a, a song in there that uh, you probably want to sit down with your children and talk about the words of that song. However, the main idea in there, let it go, great, great encouragement for believers. A lot of times, 
I'm the kind of person, I want us, get it settled. Let's talk about this. That's men in particular. My dear wife will say, are we okay? We'll be okay when we get this settled. It's good to listen to that advice. Let it go. Proverbs 17, 28, love this. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. It's better for people to think you're a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing their own heart. You ever seen that? Where people will say, you know, I have a question for you, and when they ask the question, it's clear they really mean I have a statement I want to make in the form of a question. There are times that some people just want to hear themselves talk. Foolish people have little interest in learning and more in hearing themselves talk. Proverbs 23.9 is just like the first one we read. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. And the point is, with foolish people, it often does no good to talk with them. Hello, McFly. Hard to get through. 26.9, like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand, is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. It's not just what we know, it's knowing how to use it. You may say the right thing, but use it wrongly. 28.6.11 is really a great proverb. As a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. You say, that's really gross, isn't it? You're right. Until some people are willing to deal with their problems, they will simply keep repeating them. And there's times, sometimes with things like addictions, that you have to let people discover it. And you want to fix it. Some people don't want to be fixed. And that's true of all of us in some areas. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. Proverbs 26, 12 means a proud person is in more danger for a than a fool. Are you teachable today? Do you want to learn? Do you want to grow? If not, there's more hope for a fool than for you. 27, 22, though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding them like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. When problems are deeply ingrained, sometimes even physical pain won't cause them to learn. And some just say, how many times do you have to go through this till you learn? 29.11, a fool vents all his feeling, but a wise man holds them back. You ever watched reality programs? This should be the introductory uh, proverb for many programs on television. A fool vents all his feelings. Well, I just felt this way and I felt I should express it. Well, I feel that was really a bad idea. And some people, so self-control is a desirable and helpful quality. A fool doesn't have it. And just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. And there are people who do. Let's look at this then. This is uh, chapter 27. This is a short chapter, but it's a follow-up to this. Look what happens. David thought to himself, and the reason he did that is because you can't think to someone else. One of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Really, David? God has been faithful to you all this time. And just like he did before, remember after the priest, he was at the priest at Nob, and he got scared, and his fear controlled him. So he acted on his fear. I'm going to go. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hands. I know, I've got a great idea. David and the 600 men with him, so he not only is impacting his life, but the lives of 600 men. They went over to Achish, son of Maach, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Remember this before? 
What is this guy thinking? David is a believer representing the God of the heaven and earth. Last time he saw him, do you remember him? Drooling on his beard, scratching on the doorposts of the gate. Oh my, here he is again. Each man had his family with him. 600 men, wives, 1,200 children. What are we talking? A couple thousand, 3,000 people. And David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail. Why Ahinoam? The widow of Nabal, the fool. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So he got what he wanted. And David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant, the one who defeated Goliath of Gath, live in the royal city with you? I'm nothing compared to you, O great king. So Achish gave Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. Wow, you ever been out of it for a while? Some of you have been out of it for days, weeks, months, maybe a year. David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites and the Mosquito Bites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. So David is doing the work of God. Wherever David, whenever he attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, where have you made the raid today? And David would say, I'm going to lie to you and tell you against the southern area of Judah, against the southern area of the Jeremelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform us on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the land of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, hate him. Therefore, he'll be my servant forever. So David, for a year and four months, is living a lie. He's living a lie. Why? Because he stopped believing. Everybody knows that famous biblical song, Don't Stop Believing. But here's what happens with David eventually. Psalm 54, it says, it's a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name. See what he does now? He starts turning to the Lord, and his life is this. Your life isn't like this, but David's is, right? We never do this. If we're spiritual, we're always like this, right? David's life is up and down. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me and oppressors have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold his life. When he's there, he gets it. He gets it. He'll repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I'll praise your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire on my enemies. Men and women, when we're spiritual, when we're trusting, we're safe. But David, again, like he did Psalm 34, he loses it. And I want to talk to you then about this to close today. David's exhausted. And spiritual exhaustion is dangerous, men and women. You tired today spiritually? You worn out? Feel like making major moves in your life, major changes, because you're just tired of it all? Maybe it's the news. Maybe it's family, maybe it's your job, maybe it's something physical, but you're just worn out. You're tired of everything, and you feel like you can't go on. David 
tells us the right answer to go to the Lord. You save, you go to Him, He'll He'll save you, He'll deliver you. But be careful. Be careful because you're in a dangerous place if you're worn out. So I want to share with you the end of this. While emotional exhaustion may not be a good excuse, it can be a reality for us. When we're dealing with foolish people in particular, they, we need to identify them because we can say, well, if that's their opinion of me, it must be the way it is. Not if they're thinking foolishly. We live in a world today where thumbs up and likes are what a good portion of our society lives for. If 51% of the people in America believe something, it must be true. And we live for the approval of others. Getting advice from others can be a good thing, but it can also be very, very dangerous, especially when they're foolish, when they're being fools. There's a great scene in Top Gun when Maverick comes and he's talking to his commander and says, you know, I want to know what my options are. I'm thinking I'm going to quit. Do you remember what he says to him? He says, you know, when we're up there, we constantly have to evaluate our situation and do what's right. That's what we have to do spiritually. We've got to evaluate who's saying it. We've got to evaluate the opinion. We have to be willing to stand because I would suggest to you that there's a chance we're going to increasingly become in the minority. And that minority, many of them are going to be taken out when Jesus Christ comes back to get his kingdom and rule this world. And when he comes back, there's one person's opinion you should care about. And you want that man to say to you, well done. I was so proud of you. Well done. Don't you give in. Don't you give in. Passages I gave you talk about this. Hebrews 10, 35 to 36. I want to read them to you before we end. The kingdom of God is coming. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have offered up millions of prayers daily. Many of them saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever think when you're praying that prayer, do you ever think about what you're saying? Lord Jesus, come back. End this madness. We were wrong to want our way. We were wrong to want Satan's world. We've messed everything up. It's on us, Lord Jesus, not on you. But come back. Bring your kingdom and rule. End this craziness that gets worse every day. Hebrews 10 says this to us. Therefore, he says, he said, you know, you used to react differently. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. What you believe is true. Don't let opinion polls and the news media determine for you what's true and what's not true. Your confidence, he says, has great reward. Not reward, great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise to reign and to rule with Him. All believers get in. Faithful believers rule with Him. If we endure, Paul writes, we'll reign with Him. So he says, don't throw it away. You've got to stick with it, because it's coming, and it could be today. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surround us, all these people who died in faith, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Encumbrance isn't necessarily sin. It may be too much television time. It may be that you're lazy. It may be hanging out with people you shouldn't hang out with. Things aren't necessarily sin, but they're pulling you down. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you know that man crawling? He kept saying three names over and over again. And he said, for me to crawl over that finish line, I kept saying their names over and over again. And how does he say to do it here? Run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? How do we do it? What's it say? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher. Over and over again, Lord Jesus, that's the one that's going to get me through. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising it, he hated the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God glorified him and gave him his reward because he was faithful. That's Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Galatians 6 is an interesting passage. Galatians 6 talks about getting tired. <laughs> Comes up a lot in the Bible. Let him who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. It's a good thing to do. It's what you do for us. Do not be deceived. Don't kid yourself. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he'll reap. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting. You invest in your everlasting life. You're, you're enhancing your future experience. It's hard now. But in 120 trillion billion years, you're going to be really glad for the 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, 20 years you have to endure today. And he goes on and says this, and let us not grow weary while doing good. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart, if we don't get discouraged. A friend of mine once said, I was told him I was just done. I said, I'm just so tired. And he said to me, you know, Dan, Satan had a garage sale one time. And in that garage sale, laid out all these tools on the table. And one guy picked up one that was very attractive. He said, what's this? And he goes, oh, that's not for sale. That's discouragement. That's my best weapon. And for a lot of you, maybe it's from politics, maybe it's your health. I don't know what's on your heart, but you're worn out. Don't give up. Don't give up. I don't, I don't care if you need to crawl to the finish line. Jesus Christ is coming back. And he will forever make it worth your while. The Bible says, when Jesus applies it, he says this to us. He says, don't, you don't know the day. Over and over, he says it, Matthew 24, Luke 12, you don't know the day. Don't live like you do. I have a question for you to end today. It's critical to have endurance. It's critical to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's our example. My question is a little different to you today. My question is this. If you knew with 100% certainty that Jesus was coming back this Tuesday, would it affect your life? Do me a favor, will you? I'm going to do something I don't like to do. I'm not real big on manipulation, but this is fun manipulation. Would you close your eyes, please? Bow your heads with me. And I want you to just think about something. I want you to just think, I know all of you won't do this, but for those of you that will, do this. I want you to think about this. It's Tuesday morning, and you hear a trumpet. And in a heartbeat, you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you are. No more bills to pay. No more work to go to. Never a health problem again. You now have a perfect body, the Bible says, is just like Jesus. 
and it's over. You've entered rest. What do you want him to say to you in that day? Thank you, Father, for your word. We're tired. This is really getting old. And you said that if the son asked you for the kingdom, you'd give it to him. Lord Jesus, ask him. Please ask him. Father, we pray that your kingdom will come and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen.